BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Part 2, Chapter 13 of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. Translated by Eleanor Marks Averling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2. Chapter 13. No sooner was Rodolphe at home than he sat down quickly at his bureau under the stag's head that hung as a trophy on the wall. But when he had the pen between his fingers, he could think of nothing, so that, resting on his elbows, he began to reflect. Emma seemed to him to have receded into a far-off past, as if the resolution he had taken had suddenly placed a distance between them. To get back something of her, he fetched from the cupboard at the bedside an old ream biscuit box in which he usually kept his letters from women, and from it came an odour of dry dust and withered roses. First he saw a handkerchief with pale little spots. It was a handkerchief of hers. Once when they were walking her nose had bled. He had forgotten it. Near it, chipped at all the corners, was a miniature given him by Emma. Her toilette seemed to him pretentious and her languishing look in the worst possible taste. Then, from looking at this image and recalling the memory of its original, Emma's features little by little grew confused in his remembrance, as if the living and the painted face, rubbing one against the other, had effaced each other. Finally, he read some of her letters. They were full of explanations relating to their journey, short, technical and urgent, like business notes. He wanted to see the long ones again, those of old times. In order to find them at the bottom of the box, Rodolphe disturbed all the others, and mechanically began rummaging amidst this mess of papers and things, finding pell-mell bouquet, garters, a black mask, pins and hair. Hair, dark and fair, some even catching in the hinges of the box, broke when it was opened. Thus dallying with his souvenirs, he examined the writing and the style of the letters as varied as their orthography. They were tender or jovial, facetious, melancholy. There were some that asked for love, others that asked for money. A word recalled faces to him, certain gestures, the sound of a voice. Sometimes, however, he remembered nothing at all. In fact, these women, rushing at once into his thoughts, cramped each other and lessened as reduced to a uniform level of love that equalised them all. 
So, taking handfuls of the mixed-up letters, he amused himself for some moments with letting them fall in cascades from his right into his left hand. At last, bored and weary, Rodolphe took back the box to the cupboard, saying to himself, What a lot of rubbish! Which summed up his opinion, for pleasures like schoolboys in a school courtyard had so trampled upon his heart that no green thing grew there, and that which passed through it, more heedless than children, did not even, like them, leave a name carved upon the wall. Come, he said, let's begin. He wrote, Courage, Emma, courage, I would not bring misery into your life. After all, that's true, thought Rodolphe. I am acting in her interest. I am honest. Have you carefully weighed your resolution? Do you know to what abyss I was dragging you, poor angel? No, you do not, do you? You are coming confident and fearless, believing in happiness in the future. Ah, unhappy that we are, insensate. Rodolphe stopped there to think of some good excuse. If I told her all my fortune is lost. No, besides, that would stop nothing. It would all have to be begun over again later on, as if one could make women like that listen to reason. He reflected, then went on. I shall not forget you. Oh, believe it. I shall ever have a profound devotion for you. But some day, sooner or later, this ardour, such as the fate of human things, would have grown less, no doubt. Lassitude would have come to us, and who knows if I should not even have had the atrocious pain of witnessing your remorse, or sharing it myself, since I should have been its cause. The mere idea of the grief that would come to you tortures me, Emma. Forget me. Why did I ever know you? Why were you so beautiful? Is it my fault? Oh, my God, no, no. Accuse only fate. That's a word that always tells, he said to himself. Ah, if you had been one of those frivolous women that one sees, certainly I might, through egotism, have tried an experiment, in that case without danger for you. But that delicious exaltation, at once your charm and your torment, has prevented you from understanding, adorable woman that you are, the falseness of our future position. Nor had I reflected upon this at first, and I rested in the shade of that ideal happiness as beneath that of the manchineel tree, without foreseeing the consequences. Perhaps you'll think I'm giving it up from avarice. Ah, well, so much the worse. It must be stopped. The world is cruel, Emma. Wherever we might have gone, it would have persecuted us. You would have had to put up with indiscreet questions, calumny, contempt, insult, perhaps. Insult to you. Oh, and I, who would place you on a throne, I who bear with me your memory as a talisman. For I am going to punish myself by exile for all the ill I have done you. I am going away. Whither I know not. I am mad. Adieu. Be good. Always preserve the memory of the unfortunate who has lost you. Teach my name to your child. Let her repeat it in her prayers. The wicks of the candles flickered. Rodolphe got up to shut the window, and when he had sat down again, I think it's all right, 
Ah, and this for fear she should come and hunt me up. I shall be far away when you read these sad lines, for I have wished to flee as quickly as possible to shun the temptation of seeing you again. No weakness. I shall return, and perhaps later on we shall talk together very coldly of our old love. Adieu. And there was a last adieu, divided into two words, adieu, which he thought in very excellent taste. Now, how am I to sign, he said to himself, yours devotedly? No. Your friend? Yes, that's it. Your friend? He reread his letter. He considered it very good. Poor little woman, he thought with emotion. She'll think me harder than a rock. There ought to have been some tears on this, but I can't cry. It isn't my fault. Then, having emptied some water into a glass, Rodolphe dipped his finger into it and let a big drop fall on the paper that made a pale stain on the ink. Then, looking for a seal, he came upon the one Amor nel cor. That doesn't at all fit in with the circumstances. Oh, never mind. After which he smoked three pipes and went to bed. The next day when he was up, at about two o'clock, he had slept late, Rodolphe had a basket of apricots picked. He put his letter at the bottom under some vine leaves and at once ordered Girard, his ploughman, to take it with care to Madame Bovary. He made use of this means for corresponding with her, sending, according to the season, fruits or game. If she asks after me, he said, will you tell her that I've gone on a journey? You must give the basket to her herself, into her own hands. Get along and take care. Girard put on his new blouse, knotted his handkerchief round the apricots, and walking with great heavy steps in his thick iron-bound galoshes, made his way to Yonville. Madame Bovary, when he got to her house, was arranging a bundle of linen on the kitchen table with Felicite. Here, said the ploughboy, is something for you from the master. She was seized with apprehension, and as she sought in her pocket for some coppers, she looked at the peasant with haggard eyes, while he himself looked at her with amazement, not understanding how such a present could so move anyone. At last he went out. Felicite remained. She could bear it no longer. She ran into the sitting-room as if to take the apricots there, overturned the basket, tore away the leaves, found the letter, opened it, and as if some fearful fire were behind her, Emma flew to her room, terrified. Charles was there. She saw him. He spoke to her. She heard nothing, and she went on quickly up the stairs, breathless, distraught, dumb, and ever holding this horrible piece of paper that crackled between her fingers like a plate of sheet iron. On the second floor she stopped before the attic door, which was closed. Then she tried to calm herself. She recalled the letter. She must finish it. She did not dare to. And where? How? She would be seen. Ah, oh, no, here, she thought. I should be all right. Emma pushed open the door and went in. The slates threw straight down a heavy heat that gripped her temples, stifled her. She dragged herself to the closed garret window. She drew back the bolt, and the dazzling light burst in with a leap. Opposite, beyond the roofs, stretched the open country till it was lost to sight. Down below, underneath her, the village square was empty, the stones of the pavement glittered, 
the weathercocks on the houses were motionless. At the corners of the street, from a lower story, rose a kind of humming with strident modulations. It was Binet turning. She leant against the embrasure of the window and re-read the letter with angry sneers. But the more she fixed her attention upon it, the more confused were her ideas. She saw him again, heard him, encircled him with her arms, and throbs of her heart that beat against her breast like blows of a sledgehammer grew faster and faster with uneven intervals. She looked about her with the wish that the earth might crumble into pieces. Why not end it all? What restrained her? She was free. She advanced, looking at the paving stone, saying to herself, Come, come. The luminous ray that came straight up from below drew the weight of her body towards the abyss. It seemed to her that the ground of the oscillating square went up the walls and that the floor dipped on end like a tossing boat. She was right at the edge, almost hanging, surrounded by vast space. The blue of the heavens suffused her. The air was whirling in her hollow head. She had but to yield, to let herself be taken, and the humming of the lathe never ceased like an angry voice calling her. Emma! Emma! cried Charles. She stopped. Wherever are you? Come! The thought that she had just escaped from death almost made her faint with terror. She closed her eyes. Then she shivered at the touch of a hand on her sleeve. It was Felicite. Master is waiting for you, madame. The soup is on the table. And she had to go down to sit at table. She tried to eat. The food choked her. Then she unfolded her napkin as if to examine the darns, and she really thought of applying herself to this work, counting the threads in the linen. Suddenly the remembrance of the letter returned to her. How had she lost it? Where could she find it? But she felt such weariness of spirit that she could not even invent a pretext for leaving the table. Then she became a coward. She was afraid of Charles. He knew all. That was certain. Indeed, he pronounced these words in a strange manner. We're not likely to see Monsieur Rodolphe soon again, it seems. Who told you? she said, shuddering. Who told me? he replied, rather astonished at her abrupt tone. Why, Girard, whom I met just now at the door of the Café Francais, he has gone on a journey, or is to go. She gave a sob. What surprises you in that? He absents himself like that from time to time for a change, and, ma foi, I think he's right, when one has a fortune and is a bachelor. Besides, he has jolly times, has our friend. He's a bit of a rake, Monsieur Langlois told me. He stopped for propriety's sake, because the servant came in. She put back into the basket the apricots scattered on the sideboard. Charles, without noticing his wife's colour, had them brought to him, took one, and bit into it. Ah, perfect, he said, just taste. And he handed her the basket, which she put away from her gently. Do just smell. What an odour, he remarked, passing it under her nose several times. I'm choking, she cried, leaping up. But by an effort of will, the spasm passed. Then, it's nothing, she said, it's nothing. It's nervousness. Sit down and go on eating. For she dreaded lest he should begin questioning her, attending to her, that she should not be left alone. 
Giles, to obey her, sat down again, and he spat the stones of the apricots into his hands, afterwards putting them on his plate. Suddenly a blue tilbury passed across the square at a rapid trot. Emma uttered a cry and fell back, rigid to the ground. In fact, Rodolphe, after many reflections, had decided to set out for Rouen. Now, as from La Huchette to Bouchy there is no other way than by Yonville, he had to go through the village, and Emma had recognised him by the rays of the lanterns, which like lightning flashed through the twilight. The chemist, at the tumult which broke out in the house, ran thither. The table with all the plates was upset, sauce, meat, knives, the salt and cruet stand were thrown over the room, Charles was calling for help, Berta, scared, was crying, and Felicite, whose hands trembled, was unlacing her mistress, whose whole body shivered convulsively. "'I'll run to my laboratory for some aromatic vinegar,' said the druggist. Then, as she opened her eyes on smelling the bottle, "'I was sure of it,' he remarked. "'That would wake any dead person for you.' "'Speak to us,' said Charles. "'Collect yourself. It is your Charles who loves you. Do you know me?' See, here is your little girl. I'll kiss her. The child stretched out her arms to her mother to cling to her neck. But turning away her head, Emma said in a broken voice, No, no, no one. She fainted again. They carried her to her bed. She lay there stretched at full length, her lips apart, her eyelids closed, her hands open, motionless and white as a waxen image. Two streams of tears flowed from her eyes and fell slowly upon the pillow. Charles, standing up, was at the back of the alcove, and the chemist near him maintained that meditative silence that is becoming on the serious occasions of life. "'Do not be uneasy,' he said, touching his elbow. "'I think the paroxysm has passed.' "'Yes, she is resting a little now,' answered Charles, watching her sleep. "'Poor girl, poor girl.' She'd gone off now. Then Omay asked how the accident had come about. Charles answered that she had been taken ill suddenly while she was eating some apricots. Extraordinary, continued the chemist, but it might be that the apricots had brought on the syncope. Some natures are so sensitive to certain smells, and it would even be a very fine question to study, both in its pathological and physiological relation. The priests know the importance of it, they who have introduced aromatics into all their ceremonies. It is to stupefy the senses and to bring on ecstasies, a thing, moreover, very easy in persons of the weaker sex who are more delicate than the other. Some are cited who faint at the smell of burnt hartshorn, of new bread. Take care, you'll wake her, said Bovary in a low voice. And not only, the druggist went on, are human beings subject to such anomalies, but animals also. Thus, you are not ignorant of the singularly aphrodisiac effect produced by the Napita cataria, vulgarly called catmint, on the feline race. And on the other hand, to quote an example whose authenticity I can answer for, Bridau, one of my old comrades at present established in the Rue Malpalou, possessed a dog that falls into convulsions as soon as you hold out a snuff-box to him. He often even makes the experiment before his friends at his summer-house at Guillaume Wood. Would anyone believe that a simple sternutation could produce such ravages on a quadrupedal organism? It is extremely curious, is it not? Yes, said Charles, who was not listening to him. 
This shows us, went on the other, smiling with benign self-sufficiency, the innumerable irregularities of the nervous system. With regard to Madame, she has always seemed to me, I confess, very susceptible. And so I should by no means recommend to you, my dear friend, any of those so-called remedies that, under the pretense of attacking the symptoms, attack the constitution. No, no useless physicking. Diet, that is all. Sedatives, emollients, dulcification. Then don't you think that perhaps her imagination should be worked upon? In what way? How? said Bovary. Ah, that is it. Such is indeed the question. That is the question, as I lately read in a newspaper. But Emma, awaking, cried out, The letter! The letter! They thought she was delirious, and she was by midnight. Brain fever had set in. For forty-three days Charles did not leave her. He gave up all his patience. He no longer went to bed. He was constantly feeling her pulse, putting on synapisms and cold-water compresses. He sent Justin as far as Neufchâtel for ice. The ice melted on the way. He sent him back again. He called Monsieur Canivet into consultation. He sent for Dr. La Riviere, his old master from Rouen. He was in despair. What alarmed him most was Emma's prostration, for she did not speak, did not listen, did not even seem to suffer, as if her body and soul were both resting together after all their troubles. About the middle of October she could sit up in bed, supported by pillows. Charles wept when he saw her eat her first bread and jelly. Her strength returned to her. She got up for a few hours of an afternoon, and one day, when she felt better, he tried to take her, leaning on his arm, for a walk round the garden. The sand of the paths was disappearing beneath the dead leaves. She walked slowly, dragging along her slippers and leaning against Charles's shoulder. She smiled all the time. They went thus to the bottom of the garden near the terrace. She drew herself up slowly, shading her eyes with her hand to look. She looked far off, as far as she could, but on the horizon were only great bonfires of grass smoking on the hills. You will tie yourself, my darling, said Bovary, and, pushing her gently to make her go into the arbour, sit down on this seat, you'll be comfortable. Oh, no, not there, she said in a faltering voice. She was seized with giddiness, and from that evening her illness recommenced with a more uncertain character, it is true, and more complex symptoms. Now she suffered in her heart, then in her chest, the head, the limbs. She had vomitings, in which Charles thought he saw the first signs of cancer. And besides this, the poor fellow was worried about money matters. End of Part 2, Chapter 13Part 2, Chapter 14 of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert Translated by Eleanor Mark Saverling This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2, Chapter 14 To begin with, he did not know how he could pay Monsieur Homais for all the physics supplied by him, and though as a medical man he was not obliged to pay for it, he nevertheless blushed a little at such an obligation. 
Then the expenses of the household, now that the servant was mistress, became terrible. Bills rained in upon the house, the tradesmen grumbled, Monsieur Leroux especially harassed him. In fact, at the height of Emma's illness, the latter, taking advantage of the circumstances to make his bill larger, had hurriedly brought the cloak, the travelling bag, two trunks instead of one, and a number of other things. It was very well for Charles to say he did not want them. The tradesman answered arrogantly that these articles had been ordered, and that he would not take them back. Besides, it would vex Madame in her convalescence. The doctor had better think it over. In short, he was resolved to sue him rather than give up his rights and take back his goods. Giles subsequently ordered them to be sent back to the shop. Felicite forgot. He had other things to attend to, then thought no more about them. Monsieur Leroux returned to the charge, and by turns threatening and whining, so managed that Bovary ended by signing a bill at six months. But hardly had he signed this bill than a bold idea occurred to him. It was to borrow a thousand francs from Leroux. So, with an embarrassed air, he asked if it were possible to get them, adding that it would be for a year at any interest he wished. Leroux ran off to his shop, brought back the money, and dictated another bill, by which Bovary undertook to pay to his order on the 1st of September next the sum of 1,070 francs, which, with the 180 already agreed to, made just 1,250, thus lending at 6% in addition to one-fourth for commission, and the things bringing him in a good third at the least, this ought in 12 months to give him a profit of 130 francs. He hoped that the business would not stop there that the bills would not be paid, that they would be renewed, and that his poor little money, having thriven at the doctor's as at a hospital, would come back to him one day considerably more plump and fat enough to burst his bag. Everything, moreover, succeeded with him. He was adjudicator for a supply of cider to the hospital at Neufchâtel. Monsieur Guillemin promised him some shares in the turf pits of Gourmenil, and he dreamt of establishing a new diligence service between Accueil and Rouen, which no doubt would not be long in ruining the ramshackle van of the Lion d'Or, and that, travelling faster, at a cheaper rate, and carrying more luggage, would thus put into his hands the whole commerce of Yonville. Charles several times asked himself by what means he should next year be able to pay back so much money. He reflected, imagined expedients, such as applying to his father, or selling something. But his father would be deaf, and he, he had nothing to sell. Then he foresaw such worries that he quickly dismissed so disagreeable a subject of meditation from his mind. He reproached himself with forgetting Emma, as if all his thoughts belonging to this woman, it was robbing her of something not to be constantly thinking of her. The winter was severe. Madame Bovary's convalescence slow. When it was fine, they wheeled her armchair to the window that overlooked the square, for she now had an antipathy to the garden, and the blinds on that side were always down. She wished the horse to be sold. What she formerly liked now displeased her. All her ideas seemed to be limited to the care of herself. She stayed in bed, taking little meals, rang for the servant to inquire about her gruel or to chat with her. The snow on the market roof threw a white, still light into the room, then the rain began to fall, and Emma waited daily, with a mind full of eagerness for the inevitable return of some trifling events which nevertheless had no relation to her. 
the most important was the arrival of the hirondelle in the evening. Then the landlady shouted out, and other voices answered, while Hippolyte's lantern, as he fetched the boxes from the boot, was like a star in the darkness. At midday, Charles came in, then he went out again. Next, she took some beef tea, and towards five o'clock, as the day drew in, the children coming back from school, dragging their wooden shoes along the pavement, knocked the clapper of the shutters with their rulers, one after the other. It was at this hour that Monsieur Bourissien came to see her. He inquired after her health, gave her news, exhorted her to religion, in a coaxing little prattle that was not without its charm. The mere thought of his cassock comforted her. One day, when at the height of her illness she had thought herself dying and had asked for the communion, and while they were making the preparations in her room for the sacrament, while they were turning the night-table covered with syrups into an altar, and while Felicite was strewing dahlia flowers on the floor, Emma felt some power passing over her that freed her from her pains, from all perception, from all feeling. Her body, relieved, no longer thought. Another life was beginning. It seemed to her that her being, mounting towards God, would be annihilated in that love like a burning incense that melts into vapour. The bedclothes were sprinkled with holy water. The priest drew from the holy pyx the white wafer, and it was fainting with a celestial joy that she put out her lips to accept the body of the Saviour presented to her. The curtains of the alcove floated gently round her like clouds, and the rays of the two tapers burning on the night-table seemed to shine like dazzling halos. Then she let her head fall back, fancying she heard in space the music of seraphic harps, and perceived in an azure sky, on a golden throne, in the midst of saints holding green palms, God the Father, resplendent with majesty, who with a sign sent to earth angels with wings of fire to carry her away into their arms. This splendid vision dwelt in her memory as the most beautiful thing that it was possible to dream, so that now she strove to recall her sensation. That still lasted, however, but in a less exclusive fashion and with a deeper sweetness. Her soul, tortured by pride, at length found rest in Christian humility, and tasting the joy of weakness, she saw within herself the destruction of her will that must have left a wide entrance for the inroads of heavenly grace. There existed then, in the place of happiness, still greater joys, another love beyond all loves, without pause and without end, one that would grow eternally. She saw amid the illusions of her hope a state of purity floating above the earth, mingling with heaven, to which she aspired. She wanted to become a saint. She bought chaplets and wore amulets. She wished to have in her room, by the side of her bed, a reliquary set in emeralds that she might kiss it every evening. The curé marvelled at this humour, although Emma's religion, he thought, might, from its fervour, end by touching on heresy, extravagance. But, not being much versed in these matters, as soon as they went beyond a certain limit, he wrote to Monsieur Boulard, bookseller to Monseigneur, to send him something good for a lady who was very clever. The bookseller, with as much indifference as if he had been sending off hardware to niggers, packed up, pell-mell, everything that was then the fashion in the pious book trade. 
There were little manuals in questions and answers, pamphlets of aggressive tone after the manner of Monsieur de Maistre, and certain novels in rose-coloured bindings and with a honeyed style, manufactured by troubadour seminarists or penitent blue stockings. There were the Think of It, The Man of the World at Mary's Feet by Monsieur de Blanc, decorated with many orders, the errors of Voltaire for the use of the young, etc. Madame Bovary's mind was not yet sufficiently clear to apply herself seriously to anything. Moreover, she began this reading in too much hurry. She grew provoked at the doctrines of religion. The arrogance of the polemic writings displeased her by their inveteracy in attacking people she did not know and the secular stories, relieved with religion, seemed to her written in such ignorance of the world that they insensibly estranged her from the truths of whose proof she was looking. Nevertheless, she persevered, and when the volume slipped from her hands, she fancied herself seized with the finest Catholic melancholy that an ethereal soul could conceive. As for the memory of Rodolphe, she had thrust it back to the bottom of her heart, and it remained there, more solemn and more motionless than a king's mummy in a catacomb. An exhalation escaped from this embalmed love that, penetrating through everything, perfumed with tenderness the immaculate atmosphere in which she longed to live. When she knelt on her Gothic prie-dieu, she addressed to the Lord the same suave words that she had murmured formerly to her lover in the outpourings of adultery. It was to make faith come, but no delights descended from the heavens, and she arose with tired limbs and with a vague feeling of a gigantic dupery. This searching after faith, she thought, was only one merit the more, and in the pride of her devoutness Emma compared herself to those grand ladies of long ago, whose glory she had dreamt of over a portrait of La Valliere, and who, trailing with so much majesty the lace-trimmed trains of their long gowns, retired into solitudes to shed at the feet of Christ all the tears of hearts that life had wounded. Then she gave herself up to excessive charity. She sewed clothes for the poor. She sent wood to women in childbed, and Charles one day, on coming home, found three good-for-nothings in the kitchen, seated at the table, eating soup. She had her little girl, whom, during her illness, her husband had sent back to the nurse, brought home. She wanted to teach her to read. Even when Bertha cried, she was not vexed. She had made up her mind to resignation, to universal indulgence. Her language about everything was full of ideal expressions. She said to her child, Is your stomach ache better, my angel? Madame Bovary Senior found nothing to censure, except perhaps this mania of knitting jackets for orphans instead of mending her own house linen, but harassed with domestic quarrels, the good woman took pleasure in this quiet house, and she even stayed there till after Easter to escape the sarcasms of old Bovary, who never failed on Good Friday to order chitterlings. Besides the companionship of her mother-in-law, who strengthened her a little by the rectitude of her judgment and her grave ways, Emma, almost every day, had other visitors. These were Madame Langlois, Madame Caron, Madame Dubreuil, Madame Tuvache, and regularly, from two o'clock to five o'clock, the excellent Madame Homais, who, for her part, had never believed any of the tittle-tattle about her neighbour. 
The little Hamei also came to see her. Justin accompanied them. He went up with them to her bedroom and remained standing near the door, motionless and mute. Often even Madame Bovary, taking no heed of him, began her toilette. She began by taking out her comb, shaking her head with a quick movement, and when he for the first time saw all this mass of hair that fell to her knees unrolling in black ringlets, it was to him, poor child, like a sudden entrance into something new and strange whose splendour terrified him. Emma, no doubt, did not notice his silent attentions or his timidity. She had no suspicion that the love vanished from her life was there, palpitating by her side, beneath that coarse Holland shirt, in that youthful heart open to the emanations of her beauty. Besides, she now enveloped all things with such indifference. She had words so affectionate, with looks so haughty, such contradictory ways, that one could no longer distinguish egotism from charity, or corruption from virtue. One evening, for example, she was angry with the servant who had asked to go out, and stammered as she tried to find some pretext. Then suddenly, "'So you love him?' she said. And without waiting for any answer from Felicite, who was blushing, she added, "'There, run along, enjoy yourself.' In the beginning of spring she had the garden turned up from end to end, despite Bovary's remonstrances. However, he was glad to see her, at last, manifest a wish of any kind. As she grew stronger, she displayed more willfulness. First, she found occasion to expel Mère Rollet, the nurse, who, during her convalescence, had contracted the habit of coming too often to the kitchen with her two nurslings and her boarder, better off for teeth than a cannibal. Then she got rid of the Homme family, successively dismissed all the other visitors, and even frequented church less assiduously, to the great approval of the druggist, who said to her in a friendly way, "'You were going in a bit for the cassock.' As formerly, Monsieur Bourisien dropped in every day when he came out after catechism class. He preferred staying out of doors to taking the air in the grove, as he called the arbour. This was the time when Charles came home. They were hot, some sweet cider was brought out, and they drank together to Madame's complete restoration. Binet was there, that is to say, a little lower down against the terrace wall, fishing for crayfish. Bovary invited him to have a drink, and he thoroughly understood the uncorking of the stone bottles. "'You must,' he said, throwing a satisfied glance all round him, even to the very extremity of the landscape, "'hold the bottle perpendicularly on the table,' and after the strings are cut, press up the cork with little thrusts, gently, gently, as indeed they do seltzer water at restaurants. But during his demonstration, the cider often spurted right into their faces, and then the ecclesiastic, with a thick laugh, never missed this joke. Its goodness strikes the eye. He was, in fact, a good fellow, and one day he was not even scandalised at the chemist, who advised Charles to give Madame some distraction by taking her to the theatre at Rouen to hear the illustrious tenor Lagadie. Homais, surprised at this silence, wanted to know his opinion, and the priest declared that he considered music less dangerous for morals than literature. But the chemist took up the defence of letters. The theatre, he contended, served for railing at prejudices, and beneath a mask of pleasure, taught virtue. Castigat ridendo mores, Monsieur Bourassien. Thus consider the greater part of Voltaire's tragedies, 
They are cleverly strewn with philosophical reflections that made them a vast school of morals and diplomacy for the people. I, said Binet, once saw a piece called The Gamin de Paris, in which there was the character of an old general that is really hit off to a tea. He sets down a young swell who had seduced a working girl, who, at the ending, Certainly, continued Homais, there is bad literature as there is bad pharmacy, but to condemn in a lump the most important of the fine arts seems to me a stupidity, a gothic idea, worthy of the abominable times that imprisoned Galileo. I know very well, objected the curé, that there are good works, good authors. However, if it were only those persons of different sexes united in a bewitching apartment, decorated rouge, those lights, those effeminate voices, all this must in the long run engender a certain mental libertinage, give rise to immodest thoughts and impure temptations. Such, at any rate, is the opinion of all the fathers. Finally, he added, suddenly assuming a mystic tone of voice while he rolled a pinch of snuff between his fingers, if the church has condemned the theatre she must be right we must submit to her decrees why asked the druggist should she excommunicate actors for formerly they openly took part in religious ceremonies yes in the middle of the chancel they acted they performed a kind of farce called mysteries which often offended against the laws of decency the ecclesiastic contented himself with uttering a groan and the chemist went on it's like it is in the bible there there are you know more than one piquant detail matters really libidinous and on a gesture of irritation from monsieur bourricien ah you'll admit that it is not a book to place in the hands of a young girl and i should be sorry if had to leave. but it is the protestants and not we cried the other impatiently who recommend the bible no matter, said Homais. I am surprised that in our days, in this century of enlightenment, anyone should still persist in proscribing an intellectual relaxation that is inoffensive, moralizing, and sometimes even hygienic. Is it not, doctor? No doubt, replied the doctor carelessly, either because, sharing the same ideas, he wished to offend no one, or else because he had not any ideas. The conversation seemed at an end when the chemist thought fit to shoot a Parthian arrow. I've known priests who put on ordinary clothes to go and see dancers kicking about. Come, come, said the curé. Ah, I've known some. And separating the words of his sentence, Homé repeated, I have known some. Well, they were wrong, said Borussien, resigned to anything. "'By Jove, they go in for more than that!' exclaimed the druggist. "'Sir,' replied the ecclesiastic, with such angry eyes that the druggist was intimidated by them. "'I only mean to say,' he replied in less brutal a tone, "'that toleration is the surest way to draw people to religion.' "'That is true, that is true,' agreed the good fellow, sitting down again on his chair. But he stayed only a few moments.' Then, as soon as he had gone, Monsieur Homais said to the doctor, Ah, that's what I call a cockfight. I beat him, did you see, in a way? Now, take my advice. Take Madame to the theatre. If it were only for once in your life to enrage one of these ravens, hang it. If anyone could take my place, I would accompany you myself. Be quick about it. La Jardie is only going to give one performance. He's engaged to go to England at a high salary. 
From what I hear, he's a regular dog. He's rolling in money. He's taking three mistresses and a cook along with him. All these great artists burn the candle at both ends. They require a dissolute life that suits the imagination to some extent. But they die at the hospital because they haven't the sense when young to lay by. Well, a pleasant dinner. Goodbye till tomorrow. The idea of the theatre quickly germinated in Bovary's head, for he at once communicated it to his wife, who at first refused, alleging the fatigue, the worry, the expense. But for a wonder, Charles did not give in, so sure was he that this recreation would be good for her. He saw nothing to prevent it. His mother had sent them three hundred francs, which he had no longer expected. The current debts were not very large, and the falling in of Lerreux's bills was still so far off that there was no need to think about them. Besides, imagining that she was refusing from delicacy, he insisted the more, so that by dint of worrying her she at last made up her mind, and the next day, at eight o'clock, they set out in the Hirondelle. The druggist, whom nothing whatever kept at Yonville, but who thought himself bound not to budge from it, sighed as he saw them go. Well, a pleasant journey, he said to them. Happy mortals that you are. Then, addressing himself to Emma, who was wearing a blue silk gown with four flounces, You are as lovely as a Venus. You cut a figure at Rouen. The diligence stopped at the Croix Rouge in the place Beauvoisine. It was the inn that is in every provincial faubourg, with large stables and small bedrooms, where one sees in the middle of the court chickens pilfering the oats under the muddy geeks of the commercial travellers. A good old house, with worm-eaten balconies that creak in the wind on winter nights, always full of people, noise and feeding, whose black tables are sticky with coffee and brandy, and thick windows made yellow by the flies, the damp napkins stained with cheap wine, and that always smells of the village, like ploughboys dressed in Sunday clothes, has a café on the street, and towards the countryside a kitchen garden. Charles at once set out. He muddled up the stage boxes with the gallery, the pit with the boxes, asked for explanations, did not understand them, was sent from the box office to the acting manager, came back to the inn, returned to the theatre, and thus several times traversed the whole length of the town from the theatre to the boulevard. Madame Bovary bought a bonnet, gloves and a bouquet. The doctor was much afraid of missing the beginning, and without having had time to swallow a plate of soup, they presented themselves at the doors of the theatre, which were still closed. End of part two, chapter fourteen. Part two, chapter fifteen of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Marx Abeling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2. Chapter 15. The crowd was waiting against the wall, symmetrically enclosed between the balustrades. At the corner of the neighbouring streets, huge bills repeated in quaint letters Lucie de Lamamour, La Jadie Opera, etc. The weather was fine, the people were hot. Perspiration trickled amid the curls, and handkerchiefs taken from pockets were mopping red foreheads, and now and then a warm wind that blew from the river gently stirred the border of the tick awnings hanging from the doors of the public houses. 
A little lower down, however, one was refreshed by a current of icy air that smelt of tallow, leather and oil. This was an exhalation from the Rue des Charrettes, full of large black warehouses where they made casks. For fear of seeming ridiculous, Emma, before going in, wished to have a little stroll in the harbour, and Bovary prudently kept his tickets in his hand in the pocket of his trousers, which he pressed against his stomach. Her heart began to beat as soon as she reached the vestibule. She involuntarily smiled with vanity on seeing the crowd rushing to the right by the other corridor while she went up the staircase to the reserved seats. She was as pleased as a child to push with her finger the large tapestried door. She breathed in with all her might the dusty smell of the lobbies, and when she was seated in her box, she bent forward with the air of a duchess. The theatre was beginning to fill. Opera glasses were taken from their cases, and the subscribers, catching sight of one another, were bowing. They came to seek relaxation in the fine arts after the anxieties of business. But business was not forgotten. They still talked cotton, spirits of wine or indigo. The heads of old men were to be seen, inexpressive and peaceful, with their hair and complexions looking like silver medals tarnished by steam of lead. The young beaux were strutting about in the pit, showing in the opening of their waistcoats their pink or apple-green cravats, and Madame Bovary from above admired them, leaning on their canes with golden knobs in the open palm of the yellow gloves. Now the lights of the orchestra were lit, the lustre let down from the ceiling, throwing by the glimmering of its facets a sudden gaiety over the theatre. Then the musicians came in, one after the other, and first there was the protracted hubbub of the basses rumbling, violins squeaking, cornets trumpeting, flutes and flageolets fifing. But three knocks were heard on the stage, a rolling of drums began, the brass instruments played some chords, and the curtain rising discovered a country scene. It was the crossroads of a wood, with a fountain shaded by an oak to the left. Peasants and lords with plaids on their shoulders were singing a hunting song together. Then a captain suddenly came on, who evoked the spirit of evil by lifting both his arms to heaven. Another appeared. They went away, and the hunters started afresh. She felt herself transported to the reading of her youth, into the midst of Walter Scott. She seemed to hear through the mist the sound of the Scotch bagpipes re-echoing over the heather. Then her remembrance of the novel helped her to understand the libretto. She followed the story phrase by phrase, while vague thoughts that came back to her dispersed at once again with the bursts of music. She gave herself up to the lullaby of the melodies, and felt all her being vibrate as if the violin bows were drawn over her nerves. She had not eyes enough to look at the costumes, the scenery, the actors, the painted trees that shook when anyone walked, and the velvet caps, cloaks, swords, all those imaginary things that floated amid the harmony as in the atmosphere of another world. But a young woman stepped forward, throwing a purse to a squire in green. She was left alone, and the flute was heard like the murmur of a fountain or the warbling of birds. Lucy attacked her cavatina in G major bravely. She plained of love, she longed for wings. Emma 
too fleeing from life, would have liked to fly away in an embrace. Suddenly Edgar Lagardy appeared. He had that splendour pallor that gives something of the majesty of marble to the ardent races of the South. His vigorous form was tightly clad in a brown-coloured doublet. A small chiselled poniard hung against his left thigh, and he cast round laughing looks showing his white teeth. They said that a Polish princess, having heard him sing one night on the beach at Biarritz when he mended boats, had fallen in love with him. She had ruined herself for him. He had deserted her for other women, and this sentimental celebrity did not fail to enhance his artistic reputation. The diplomatic mummer took care always to slip into his advertisement some poetic phrase on the fascination of his person and the susceptibility of his soul. A fine organ, imperturbable coolness, more temperament than intelligence, more power of emphasis than of real singing, made up the charm of this admirable charlatan nature, in which there was something of the hairdresser and the toreador. From the first scene he evoked enthusiasm. He pressed Lucy in his arms. He left her. He came back. He seemed desperate. He had outbursts of rage, then elegaic gurglings of infinite sweetness, and the notes escaped from his bare neck full of sobs and kisses. Emma leant forward to see him clutching the velvet of the box with her nails. She was filling her heart with these melodious lamentations that were drawn out to the accompaniment of the double basses, like the cries of the drowning and the tumult of a tempest. She recognised all the intoxication and the anguish that had almost killed her. The voice of a prima donna seemed to her to be but echoes of her conscience, and this illusion that charmed her as some very thing of her own life. But no one on earth had loved her with such love. He had not wept like Edgar that last moonlit night when they said, Tomorrow, tomorrow. The theatre rang with cheers. They recommenced the entire movement. The lovers spoke of the flowers on their tomb, of vows, exile, fate, hopes. And when they uttered the final adieu, Emma gave a sharp cry that mingled with the vibrations of the last chords. But why, asked Bovary, does that gentleman persecute her? No, no, she answered, he is her lover. Yet he vows vengeance on her family, while the other one who came on before said, I love Lucy, and she loves me. Besides, he went off with her father, arm in arm, for he certainly is her father, isn't he, the ugly little man with a cock's feather in his hat? Despite Emma's explanations, as soon as the recitative duet began again, in which Gilbert lays bare his abominable machinations to his master Ashton, Charles, seeing the false troth ring that is to deceive Lucy, thought it was a love gift sent by Edgar. He confessed, moreover, that he did not understand the story because of the music, which interfered very much with the words. "'What does it matter?' said Emma. "'Do be quiet.' "'Yes, but you know,' he went on, leaning against her shoulder, "'I like to understand things.' "'Be quiet, be quiet,' she cried impatiently. Lucy advanced, half-supported by her women, a wreath of orange blossoms in her hair, and paler than the white satin of her gown. 
Emma dreamed of her marriage day. She saw herself at home again amid the corn in the little path as they walked to the church. Oh, why had not she, like this woman, resisted, implored? She, on the contrary, had been joyous without seeing the abyss into which she was throwing herself. Ah, if in the freshness of her beauty, before the soiling of marriage and the dissolutions of adultery, she could have anchored her life upon some great strong heart, then virtue, tenderness, voluptuousness, and duty blending, she would never have fallen from so high a happiness. But that happiness, no doubt, was a lie invented for the despair of all desire. She now knew the smallness of the passions that art exaggerated. So, striving to divert her thoughts, Emma determined now to see in this reproduction of her sorrows only a plastic fantasy, well enough to please the eye. And she even smiled internally with disdainful pity when, at the back of the stage, under the velvet hangings, a man appeared in a black cloak. His large Spanish hat fell at a gesture he made, and immediately the instruments and the singers began the sextet. Edgar, flashing with fury, dominated all the others with his clearer voice. Ashton hurled homicidal provocations at him in deep notes. Lucy uttered her shrill plaint, Arthur at one side his modulated tones in the middle register and the bass of the minister pealed forth like an organ, while the voices of the women, repeating his words, took them up in chorus delightfully. They were all in a row, gesticulating, and anger, vengeance, jealousy, terror, and stupefaction breathed forth at once from their half-opened mouths. The outraged lover brandished his naked sword. His guipure ruffle rose with jerks to the movements of his chest, and he walked from right to left with long strides, clanking against the boards the silver-gilt spurs of his soft boots widening out at the ankles. He, she thought, must have an inexhaustible love to lavish it upon the crowd with such effusion. All her small fault-findings faded before the poetry of the part that absorbed her and drawn towards this man by the illusion of the character, she tried to imagine to herself his life, that life resonant, extraordinary, splendid, and that might have been hers if fate had willed it. They would have known one another, loved one another. With him, through all the kingdoms of Europe, she would have travelled from capital to capital, sharing his fatigues and his pride, picking up the flowers thrown to him, herself embroidering his costumes. Then, each evening at the back of a box, behind the golden trellis work, she would have drunk in eagerly the expansions of this soul that would have sung for her alone. From the stage, even as he acted, he would have looked at her. But the mad idea seized her that he was looking at her. It was certain. She longed to run to his arms, to take refuge in his strength, as in the incarnation of love itself, and to say to him, to cry out, Take me away, carry me with you, let us go, thine, thine, all my ardour and all my dreams. The curtain fell. The smell of the gas mingled with that of the breaths. The waving of the fans made the air more suffocating. Emma wanted to go out, 
The crowd filled the corridors, and she fell back in her armchair with palpitations that choked her. Giles, fearing that she would faint, ran to the refreshment room to get a glass of barley water. He had great difficulty in getting back to his seat, for his elbows were jerked at every step because of the glass he held in his hands, and he even spilt three-fourths on the shoulders of a Rouen lady in short sleeves, who, feeling the cold liquid running down to her loins, uttered cries like a peacock as if she were being assassinated. Her husband, who was a mill-owner, railed at the clumsy fellow, and while she was with her handkerchief wiping up the stains from her handsome cherry-coloured taffeta gown, he angrily muttered about indemnity, costs, reimbursement. At last Charles reached his wife, saying to her quite out of breath, Ma foi, I thought I should have to stay there. There's such a crowd, such a crowd. He added, Just guess whom I met up there. Monsieur Léon. Léon? Himself. He's coming along to pay his respects. And as he finished these words, the ex-clerk of Yonville entered the box. He held out his hand with the ease of a gentleman, and Madame Bovary extended hers, without doubt obeying the attraction of a stronger will. She had not felt it since that spring evening when the rain fell upon the green leaves and they had said good-bye, standing at the window. But soon recalling herself to the necessities of the situation, with an effort she shook off the torpor of her memories and began stammering a few hurried words. "'Ah, good day! What, you here?' "'Silence!' cried a voice from the pit, for the third act was beginning. "'So you are at Rouen?' Yes. And since when? Turn them out! Turn them out! People were looking at them. They were silent. But from that moment she listened no more, and the chorus of the guests, the scene between Ashton and his servant, the grand duet in D major, all were for her as far off as if the instruments had grown less sonorous and the characters more remote. She remembered the games at cards at the druggists, and the walk to the nurses, the reading in the arbour, the tete-a-tete by the fireside, all that poor love, so calm and so protracted, so discreet, so tender, and that she had, nevertheless, forgotten. And why had he come back? What combination of circumstances had brought him back into her life? He was standing behind her, leaning with his shoulder against the wall of the box. Now and again she felt herself shuddering beneath the hot breath of his nostrils falling upon her hair. "'Does this amuse you?' he said, bending over her so closely that the end of his moustache brushed her cheek. She replied carelessly, "'Oh, dear me, no, not much.' Then he proposed that they should leave the theatre and go and take an ice somewhere. "'Oh, not yet. Let us stay,' said Bovary. "'Her hair's undone. This is going to be tragic.' But the mad scene did not at all interest Emma, and the acting of the singer seemed to her exaggerated. "'She screams too loud,' she said, turning to Charles, who was listening. "'Yes, a, a little,' he replied, undecided between the frankness of his pleasure and his respect for his wife's opinion. Then, with a sigh, Léon said, the heat is unbearable, yes. Do you feel unwell? asked Bovary. Yes, I'm stifling. Let us go. 
Monsieur Léon put a long lace shawl carefully about her shoulders, and all three went off to sit down in the harbour, in the open air, outside the windows of a café. First they spoke of her illness, although Emma interrupted Charles from time to time, for fear, she said, of boring Monsieur Léon and the latter told them that he had come to spend two years at Rouen, in a large office, in order to get practice in his profession, which was different in Normandy and Paris. Then he inquired after Berta, the Homais, Mère Le François, and, as they had in the husband's presence nothing more to say to one another, the conversation soon came to an end. People coming out of the theatre passed along the pavement, humming or shouting at the top of their voices, O Belange, Ma Lucia. Then Léon, playing the dilettante, began to talk music. He had sent Tamburini, Rubini, Persiani, Grisi, and compared with them, Lagardi, despite his grand outbursts, was nowhere. Yet, interrupted Charles, who was slowly sipping his rum sherbet, they say that he is quite admirable in the last act. I regret leaving before the end, because it was beginning to amuse me. Why, said the clerk, he will soon give another performance. But Charles replied that they were going back next day. Unless, he added, turning to his wife, you would like to stay alone, kitten? And changing his tactics at this unexpected opportunity that presented itself to his hopes, the young man sang the praises of Lagardi in the last number. It was really superb, sublime. Then Charles insisted, You would get back on Sunday. Come, make up your mind. You are wrong if you feel that this is doing you the least good. The tables round them, however, were emptying. A waiter came and stood discreetly near them. Charles, who understood, took out his purse. The clerk held back his arm, and did not forget to leave two more pieces of silver that he made chink on the marble. "'I'm really sorry,' said Bovary, "'about the money which you are—' The other made a careless gesture, full of cordiality, and taking his hat, said, "'It is settled, isn't it? Tomorrow at six o'clock.' Charles explained once more that he could not absent himself longer, but that nothing prevented Emma— but she stammered with a strange smile, I'm not sure. Well, you must think it over. We'll see. Night brings counsel. Then to Léon, who was walking along with them. Now that you're in our part of the world, I hope you'll come and ask us for some dinner now and then. The clerk declared he would not fail to do so, being obliged, moreover, to go to Yonville on some business for his office and they parted before the Saint-Herblanc passage, just as the clock in the cathedral struck half-past eleven. End of Part 2 Chapter 15Read by Peter Dan. Part 3. Chapter 1. Monsieur Léon, while studying law, had gone pretty often to the dancing rooms, where he was even a great success among the grisettes, who thought he had a distinguished air. He was the best-mannered of the students. He wore his hair neither too long nor too short, didn't spend all his quarter's money on the first day of the month, and kept on good terms with his professors. As for excesses, he had always abstained from them, as much from cowardice as from refinement. 
Often when he stayed in his room to read, or else when sitting of an evening under the lime-trees of the Luxembourg, he let his code fall to the ground, and the memory of Emma came back to him. But gradually this feeling grew weaker, and other desires gathered over it, although it still persisted through them all. For Léon did not lose all hope. There was for him, as it were, a vague promise floating in the future, like a golden fruit suspended from some fantastic tree. Then, seeing her again after three years of absence, his passion reawakened. He must, he thought, at last make up his mind to possess her. Moreover, his timidity had worn off by contact with his gay companions, and he returned to the provinces, despising every one who had not, with varnished shoes, trodden the asphalt of the boulevards. By the side of a Parisienne in her laces, in the drawing-room of some illustrious physician, a person driving his carriage and wearing many orders, the poor clerk would no doubt have trembled like a child. But here, at Rouen, on the harbour, with the wife of this small doctor, he felt at his ease, sure beforehand he would shine. Self-possession depends on its environment. We don't speak on the first floor as on the fourth, and the wealthy woman seems to have about her to guard her virtue all her banknotes, like a cuirass in the lining of her corset. On leaving the Bovaries the night before, Léon had followed them through the streets at a distance, then, having seen them stop at the Croix Rouge, he turned on his heel and spent the night meditating a plan. So, the next day, about five o'clock, he walked into the kitchen of the inn with a choking sensation in his throat, pale cheeks, and that resolution of cowards that stops at nothing. "'The gentleman isn't in,' answered a servant. This seemed to him a good omen. He went upstairs." She was not disturbed at his approach. On the contrary, she apologised for having neglected to tell him where they were staying. "'Oh, I divined it,' said Léon. He pretended he had been guided towards her by chance, by instinct. She began to smile, and at once, to repair his folly, Léon told her that he had spent his morning in looking for her in all the hotels in the town, one after the other. "'So you have made up your mind to stay,' he added. "'Yes,' she said, "'and I am wrong. "'One ought not to accustom oneself to impossible pleasures "'when there are a thousand demands upon one.' "'Oh, I can imagine. "'Oh, no, for you, you are a man.' "'But men, too, had had their trials, "'and the conversation went off into certain philosophical reflections.' Emma expatiated much on the misery of earthly affections and the eternal isolation in which the heart remains entombed. To show off, or from a naive imitation of this melancholy which called forth his, the young man declared that he had been awfully bored during the whole course of his studies. The law irritated him, other vocations attracted him, and his mother never ceased worrying him in every one of her letters. As they talked, they explained more and more fully the motives of their sadness, working themselves up in their progressive confidence. But they sometimes stopped short of the complete exposition of their thought, and then sought to invent a phrase that might express it all the same. She did not confess her passion for another. He did not say he had forgotten her. 
Perhaps he no longer remembered his suppers with girls after masked balls. And no doubt she did not recollect the rendezvous of old when she ran across the fields in the morning to her lover's house. The noises of the town hardly reached them, and the room seemed small, as if on purpose to hem in their solitude more closely. Emma, in a dimity dressing-gown, leant her head against the back of the old armchair. The yellow wallpaper formed, as it were, a golden background behind her, and her bare head was mirrored in the glass with the white parting in the middle and the tip of her ears peeping out from the folds of her hair. But pardon me, she said, it is wrong of me. I weary you with my eternal complaints. No, never, never. If you knew, she went on, raising to the ceiling her beautiful eyes in which a tear was trembling, all that I had dreamed. And I, oh, I too have suffered. Often I went out, I went away. I dragged myself along the quays, seeking distraction amid the din of the crowd, without being able to banish the heaviness that weighed upon me. In an engraver's shop on the boulevard there is an Italian print of one of the muses. She is draped in a tunic, and she is looking at the moon, with forget-me-nots in her flowing hair. Something drove me there continually. I stayed there hours together. Then, in a trembling voice, she resembled you a little. Madame Bovary turned away her head, that he might not see the irrepressible smile she felt rising to her lips. Often, he went on, I wrote you letters that I tore up. She did not answer. He continued, I sometimes fancied that some chance would bring you. I thought I recognised you at street corners, and I ran after all the carriages through whose windows I saw a shawl fluttering, a veil like yours. She seemed resolved to let him go on speaking without interruption. Crossing her arms and bending down her face, she looked at the rosettes on her slippers, and at intervals made little movements inside the satin of them with her toes. At last she sighed. But the most wretched thing, is it not, is to drag out, as I do, a useless existence. If our pains were only of some use to someone, we should find consolation in the thought of the sacrifice. He started off in praise of virtue, duty, and silent immolation, having himself an incredible longing for self-sacrifice that he could not satisfy. I should much like, she said, to be a nurse at a hospital. Alas, men have none of these holy missions, and I see nowhere any calling unless perhaps that of a doctor. With a slight shrug of her shoulders, Emma interrupted him to speak of her illness, which had almost killed her. What a pity she should not be suffering now. Leon at once envied the calm of the tomb, and one evening he had even made his will, asking to be buried in that beautiful rug with velvet stripes he had received from her. For this was how they would have wished to be, each setting up an ideal to which they were now adapting their past life. Besides, speech is a rolling mill that always thins out the sentiment. But at this invention of the rug, she asked, But why? Why? He hesitated. Because I loved you so. And congratulating himself at having surmounted the difficulty, Leon watched her face out of the corner of his eyes. It was like the sky when a gust of wind drives the clouds across. 
The mass of sad thoughts that darkened them seemed to be lifted from her blue eyes. Her whole face shone. He waited. At last, she replied, I always suspected it. Then they went over all the trifling events of that far-off existence whose joys and sorrows they had just summed up in one word. They recalled the arbour with Clematis, the dresses she had worn, the furniture of her room, the whole of her house. And our poor cactuses, where are they? The cold killed them this winter. And how I have thought of them, do you know? I often saw them again as of yore, when on the summer mornings the sun beat down upon your blinds, and I saw your two bare arms passing out amongst the flowers. Poor friend, she said, holding out her hand to him. Leon swiftly pressed his lips to it, then when he had taken a deep breath. At that time you were to me, I know not what incomprehensible force that took captive my life. Once, for instance, I went to see you, but you no doubt do not remember it. I do, she said. Go on. You were downstairs in the ante-room, ready to go out, standing on the last stair. You were wearing a bonnet with small blue flowers, and without any invitation from you, in spite of myself, I went with you. Every moment, however, I grew more and more conscious of my folly, and I went on walking by you, not daring to follow you completely and unwilling to leave you. When you went into a shop, I waited in the street and I watched you through the windows taking off your gloves and counting the change on the counter. Then you rang at Madame Tuvache's. You were let in and I stood like an idiot in front of the great heavy door that had closed after you. Madame Bovary, as she listened to him, wondered that she was so old. All these things reappearing before her seemed to widen out her life, and it was like some sentimental immensity to which she returned, and from time to time she said in a low voice, her eyes half closed, Yes, it is true, true, true. They heard eight strike on the different clocks of the Beauvoisine quarter, which is full of schools, churches and large empty hotels. They no longer spoke, but they felt as they looked upon each other a buzzing in their heads, as if something sonorous had escaped from the fixed eyes of each of them. They were hand in hand now, and the past, the future, reminiscences and dreams, all were confounded in the sweetness of this ecstasy. Night was darkening over the walls, on which still shone, half hidden in the shade, the coarse colours of four bills, representing four scenes from the Tour de Nail, with a motto in Spanish and French at the bottom. Through the sash window a patch of dark sky was seen between the pointed roofs. She rose to light two wax candles on the drawers, then she sat down again. Well, said Léon, well she replied. He was thinking how to resume the interrupted conversation when she said to him, How is it that no one until now has ever expressed such sentiments to me? The clerk said that ideal natures were difficult to understand. He, from the first moment, had loved her, and he despaired when he thought of the happiness that would have been theirs if, thanks to fortune meeting her earlier, they had been indissolubly bound to one another. 
I have sometimes thought of it, she went on. What a dream, murmured Léon. And fingering gently the blue binding of her long white sash, he added, And who prevents us from beginning now? No, my friend, she replied, I am too old, you are too young. Forget me, others will love you, you will love them. Not as you, he cried. What a child you are. Come, let us be sensible. I wish it. She showed him the impossibility of their love, and that they must remain, as formerly, on the simple terms of a fraternal friendship. Was she speaking thus seriously? No doubt Emma did not herself know, quite absorbed as she was by the charm of the seduction and the necessity of defending herself from it and contemplating the young man with a moved look, she gently repulsed the timid caresses that his trembling hands attempted. Ah, forgive me, he cried, drawing back. Emma was seized with a vague fear at this shyness, more dangerous to her than the boldness of Rodolphe when he advanced to her open-armed. No man had ever seemed to her so beautiful. An exquisite candour emanated from his being, he lowered his long, fine eyelashes that curled upwards. His cheek with the soft skin reddened, she thought, with desire of her person, and Emma felt an invincible longing to press her lips to it. Then, leaning towards the clock as if to see the time, Ah, how late it is, she said, how we do chatter. He understood the hint and took up his hat. It has even made me forget the theatre. And poor Bovary has left me here especially for that. Monsieur Lomeau of the Rue Grand Pont was to take me and his wife. And the opportunity was lost as she was to leave the next day. Really, said Léon, yes. But I must see you again, he went on. I wanted to tell you what? Something important, serious. Oh, no. Besides, you will not go. It is impossible. If you should listen to me, then you have not understood me. You have not guessed. Yet you speak plainly, said Emma. Ah, you can jest. Enough, enough. Oh, for pity's sake, let me see you once. Only once. Well, she stopped then, as if thinking better of it. Oh, not here. Where you will. Will you? She seemed to reflect then abruptly. Tomorrow, at eleven o'clock, in the cathedral. I shall be there, he cried, seizing her hands, which she disengaged. And as they were both standing up, he behind her and Emma with her head bent, he stooped over her and pressed long kisses on her neck. You're mad, <laughs> you're mad, she said with sounding little laughs, while the kisses multiplied. Then, bending his head over her shoulders, he seemed to beg the consent of her eyes. They fell upon him, full of an icy dignity. Léon stepped back to go out. He stopped on the threshold, then he whispered with a trembling voice, Tomorrow. She answered with a nod, and disappeared like a bird into the next room. In the evening, Emma wrote the clerk an interminable letter in which she cancelled the rendezvous. All was over. They must not, for the sake of their happiness, meet again. 
But when the letter was finished, as she did not know Léon's address, she was puzzled. I'll give it to him myself, she said. He will come. The next morning at the open window and humming on his balcony, Léon himself varnished his pumps with several coatings. He put on white trousers, fine socks, a green coat, emptied all the scent he had into his handkerchief. Then, having had his hair curled, he uncurled it again in order to give it a more natural elegance. It is still too early, he thought, looking at the hairdresser's cuckoo clock that pointed to the hour of nine. He read an old-fashioned journal, went out, smoked a cigar, walked up three streets, thought it was time and went slowly towards the porch of Notre Dame. It was a beautiful summer morning. Silver plate sparkled in the jeweller's windows, and the light falling obliquely on the cathedral made mirrors of the corners of the grey stones. A flock of birds fluttered in the grey sky round the trefoil bell turrets. The square, resounding with cries, was fragrant with the flowers that bordered its pavement, roses, jasmines, pinks, narcissi and tube-roses, unevenly spaced out between moist grasses, catmint and chickweed for the birds. The fountains gurgled in the centre, and under large umbrellas, amidst melons, piled up in heaps, flower-women, bareheaded, were twisting paper round bunches of violets. The young man took one. It was the first time that he had bought flowers for a woman, and his breast, as he smelt them, swelled with pride, as if this homage that he meant for another had recoiled upon himself. But he was afraid of being seen. He resolutely entered the church. The beadle, who was just then standing on the threshold in the middle of the left doorway under the dancing Marianne with feather cap and rapier dangling against his calves, came in more majestic than a cardinal and as shining as a saint on a holy pyx. He came towards Léon, and with that smile of wheedling benignity assumed by ecclesiastics when they question children, the gentleman, no doubt, does not belong to these parts. The gentleman would like to see the curiosities of the church? No, said the other. And he first went round the lower aisles. Then he went out to look at the place. Emma was not coming yet. He went up again to the choir. The nave was reflected in the full fonts with the beginning of the arches and some portions of the glass windows. But the reflections of the paintings, broken by the marble rim, were continued farther on upon the flagstones like a many-coloured carpet. The broad daylight from without streamed into the church in three enormous rays from the three opened portals. From time to time at the upper end a sacristan passed, making the oblique genuflection of devout persons in a hurry. The crystal lustres hung motionless. In the choir a silver lamp was burning, and from the side chapels and dark places of the church sometimes rose sounds like sighs, with the clang of a closing grating, its echo reverberating under the lofty vault. Léon, with solemn steps, walked along by the walls. Life had never seemed so good to him. She would come directly, charming, agitated, looking back at the glances that followed her and with her flounced dress, her gold eyeglass, her thin shoes, with all sorts of elegant trifles that he had never enjoyed, and with the ineffable seduction of yielding virtue. 
the church like a huge boudoir spread around her, the arches bent down to gather in the shade the confession of her love. The windows shone resplendent to illumine her face, and the censers would burn that she might appear like an angel amid the fumes of the sweet-smelling odours. But she did not come. He sat down on a chair, and his eyes fell upon a blue-stained window representing boatmen carrying baskets. He looked at it long, attentively, and he counted the scales of the fishes and the buttonholes of the doublets while his thoughts wandered off towards Emma. The beadle, standing aloof, was inwardly angry at this individual who took the liberty of admiring the cathedral by himself. He seemed to him to be conducting himself in a monstrous fashion, to be robbing him in a sort, and almost committing sacrilege. But a rustle of silk on the flags, the tip of a bonnet, a lined cloak, it was she. Léon rose and ran to meet her. Emma was pale. She walked fast. Read, she said, holding out a paper to him. Oh, no! and she abruptly withdrew her hand to enter the chapel of the Virgin, where, kneeling on a chair, she began to pray. The young man was irritated at this bigot fancy. Then he nevertheless experienced a certain charm in seeing her in the middle of a rendezvous, thus lost in her devotions like an Andalusian marchioness. Then he grew bored, for she seemed never coming to an end. Emma prayed or rather strove to pray, hoping that some sudden resolution might descend to her from heaven and to draw down divine aid, she filled full her eyes with the splendours of the tabernacle. She breathed in the perfumes of the full-blown flowers in the large vases and listened to the stillness of the church that only heightened the tumult of her heart. She rose, and they were about to leave when the beadle came forward, hurriedly saying, Madame, no doubt, does not belong to these parts. Madame would like to see the curiosities of the church. Oh, no, cried the clerk. Why not, said she, for she clung with her expiring virtue to the virgin, the sculptures, the tombs, anything. Then, in order to proceed by rule, the beadle conducted them right to the entrance near the square, where, pointing out with his cane a large circle of block stones without inscription or carving, This, he said majestically, is the circumference of the beautiful bell of Amboise. It weighed forty thousand pounds. There was not its equal in all Europe. The workman who cast it died of the joy. Let us go on, said Léon. The old fellow started off again. Then, having got back to the chapel of the Virgin, he stretched forth his arm with an all-embracing gesture of demonstration, and, prouder than a country squire showing you his espaliers, went on, This simple stone covers Pierre de Braise, Lord of Varennes and of Brissac, Grand Marshal of Poitou and Governor of Normandy, who died at the Battle of Montherry on the 16th of July, 1465. Léon bit his lips, fuming. And on the right, this gentleman, all encased in iron on the prancing horse, is his grandson, Louis de Braise, Lord of Breval and of Montchauvet, 
Camp de Molevrier, Baron de Morny, Chamberlain to the King, Knight of the Order, and also Governor of Normandy, died on the 23rd of July, 1531, a Sunday, as the inscription specifies. And below this figure, about to descend into the tomb, portrays the same person. It is not possible, is it, to see a more perfect representation of annihilation? Madame Bovary put up her eyeglasses. Léon, motionless, looked at her, no longer even attempting to speak a single word, to make a gesture. So discouraged was he at this twofold obstinacy of gossip and indifference. The everlasting guide went on. Near him, this kneeling woman who weeps, is his spouse, Diane de Poitiers, Countess de Braise, Duchess de Valentinois, born in 1499, died in 1566, and to the left, the one with the child, is the Holy Virgin. Now turn to this side, here are the tombs of the Amboise. They were both cardinals and archbishops of Rouen. That one was minister under Louis Twelfth. He did a great deal for the cathedral. In his will he left 30,000 gold crowns for the poor. And without stopping, still talking, he pushed them into a chapel full of balustrades, some put away, and disclosed a kind of block that certainly might once have been an ill-made statue. Truly, he said with a groan, it adorned the tomb of Richard Coeur de Lyon, King of England and Duke of Normandy. It was the Calvinist, sir, who reduced it to this condition. They had buried it for spite in the earth, under the episcopal seat of Monseigneur, See, this is the door by which Monseigneur passes to his house. Let us pass on quickly to see the gargoyle windows. But Léon hastily took some silver from his pocket and seized Emma's arm. The beadle stood dumbfounded, not able to understand this untimely munificence when there were still so many things for the stranger to see. So calling him back, he cried, Sir, sir, the steeple, the steeple! No, thank you, said Léon. You are wrong, sir. It is four hundred and forty feet high, nine less than the great pyramid of Egypt. It is all cast. It... Léon was fleeing, for it seemed to him that his love, that for nearly two hours now had become petrified in the church like the stones, would vanish like a vapour through that sort of truncated funnel of oblong cage of open chimney that rises so grotesquely from the cathedral, like the extravagant attempt of some fantastic brazier. But where are we going? she said. Making no answer, he walked on with a rapid step, and Madame Bovary was already dipping her finger in the holy water when behind them they heard a panting breath interrupted by the regular sound of a cane. Léon turned back. Sir, what is it? And he recognised the beadle holding under his arms and balancing against his stomach some twenty large sewn volumes. They were works which treated of the cathedral. Idiot, growled Léon, rushing out of the church. A lad was playing about the close. Go and get me a cab. The child bounded off like a ball by the Rue Quatrevent. Then they were alone a few minutes, face to face and a little embarrassed. Oh, Léon, really, I don't know if I ought, she whispered. Then, with a more serious air, Do you know, it is very improper. How so, replied the clerk, it is done at Paris? And that is an irresistible argument, decided her. 
Still the cab did not come. Léon was afraid she might go back into the church. At last the cab appeared. At all events, go out by the north porch, cried the beadle, who was left alone on the threshold, so as to see the resurrection, the last judgment, paradise, King David, and the condemned in hell flames. Where to, sir? asked the coachman. Where you like, said Léon, forcing Emma into the cab. And the lumbering machine set out. It went down the Rue Grand Pont, crossed the Place des Arts, the Quai Napoléon, the Pont Neuf, and stopped short before the statue of Pierre Corneille. Go on, cried a voice that came from within. The cab went on again, and as soon as it reached the Carrefour Lafayette, set off downhill and entered the station at a gallop. No, straight on, cried the same voice. The cab came out by the gate, and soon, having reached the Cours, trotted quietly beneath the elm trees. The coachman wiped his brow, put his leather hat between his knees, and drove his carriage beyond the side alley by the meadow to the margin of the waters. It went along by the river, along the towing path paved with sharp pebbles, and for a long while in the direction of Oiseau beyond the isles. But suddenly it turned with a dash across Quatre-Mer, Sotteville, La Grande Chaussée, the Boule Boeuf, and made its third halt in front of the Jardin des Plantes. Get on, will you? cried the voice more furiously. And at once, resuming its course, it passed by Saint-Sever, by the Quai des Carandiers, by Quai aux Meurles, once more over the bridge, by the Place du Champ de Mar, and behind the hotel gardens, where old men in black coats were walking in the sun along the terrace, all green with ivory. It went up the boulevard Bouvreuil, along the boulevard Cauchoise, then the whole of Mont Riboudet to the Daville Hills. It came back, and then, without any fixed plan or direction, wandered about at hazard. The cab was seen at Saint-Paul, at Lescure, at Mont Gargan, at La Rouge Marc, and Place du Gaillabois, in the Rue Maladrerie, Rue Dinanderie, before Saint-Romain, Saint-Vivien, Saint-Maclou, Saint-Nicaise, in front of the customs, at the Vieille Tour, the Trois-Pipes, and the monumental cemetery. From time to time the coachman on his box cast despairing eyes at the public houses. He could not understand what furious desire for locomotion urged these individuals never to wish to stop. He tried to now and then, and at once exclamations of anger burst forth behind him. Then he lashed his perspiring jades afresh, but indifferent to their jolting, running up against things here and there, not caring if he did, demoralised and almost weeping with thirst, fatigue and depression. And on the harbour, in the midst of the drays and casks, and in the streets, at the corners, the good folk opened large, wonder-stricken eyes at this sight, so extraordinary in the provinces, a cab with blinds drawn, and which appeared thus constantly shut more closely than a tomb, and tossing about like a vessel. Once, in the middle of the day, in the open country, just as the sun beat most fiercely against the old plated lanterns, a bared hand passed beneath the small blinds of yellow canvas, and threw out some scraps of paper that scattered in the wind, and farther off lighted like white butterflies on a field of red clover all in bloom. At about six o'clock the carriage stopped in a back street at the Beauvoisin quarter, and a woman got out, who walked with her veil down, and without turning her head.
End of part three, chapter one.